Hello, my fellow Westorians. We are ready to begin our exciting new chapter, series of chapters, like 350-ish chapters, really. Welcome to Valar Reredus. We should start back, is the first line of the series. And there's a lot of meta in that line, because George R. Martin was once asked if he would ever do an atlas of ice and fire, something that a lot of different fiction writers have done, especially fantasy novelists. But George was pretty adamant that he would never do such a thing. He said, it's all in there. You just have to reread. <laughs> Indeed, that is what we have to do. So we're going to. Now, of course, George did eventually write additional material outside of the novels, but it's still not a narrator, an all-seeing narrator who knows things. It's still all from the perspective of in-world characters. So I am really, really excited about this. Just starting to reread A Game of Thrones has just reminded me of what we're in for, just the little details, finding so much in every sentence, and having so much to say about so much. Yeah, I, I can hardly contain myself. And this is, to be clear, this is an advanced class. If this were a university setting, this isn't for casual Song of Ice and Fire fans. This is a reread, not a read. It's not Valar Redis. <laughs> it is Valar Reredus. So anyone who's been with History of Westeros for a while, meaning been a listener or watching that already, that we go deep into the details, but we haven't done anything like this specifically, actually delving straight into the material. It's a new look for us. And it's going to be so much fun. It's like a guided tour uh, in, in a different sense. We're going we're gonna to do, do things our way. There's going to be a lot of detail gathering, of course. That's one of our favorite things to do. We're going to point out the historical tidbits. We're going to point out a lot of foreshadowing. It's going to be so awesome. We're reading, reading the books together. <laughs> that's just so great. No matter what else, no matter how else this falls out, that's going to be the best. There'll be TV show spoilers, but there will also be the Winds of Winter spoilers, right? That's right. Yes, we're also going to take into account the Winds of Winter. That that will be to a pretty big minimum. We don't have a lot of reason to bring up all these Winds of Winter chapters frequently. The show stuff is going to be pretty hard not to take into account somewhat frequently. It doesn't mean we're going to delve into what the show did, but we are going to acknowledge what it did and compare it to what we might get in the books. Now, it's the journey, not the destination, right? Even if we know certain endgame points for certain major characters, how we're going to get there is still a huge mystery, and George writes it all so well. I'm not geeking out and re-falling in love with The Song of Ice and Fire over just these first few chapters because they're new to me. I know exactly what's happening in them, and I, I love reading them. So again, if you're like me at all in that regard, it doesn't matter much that some of these big endgame spoilers. And because our pace is going to be aggressive, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the well-known plots. In other words, we're not going to we're not going to rehash the murder of John Aaron all that much. We're not going to ignore it either, but it's not going to be something we get really deep into the weeds on. However, counterexample, Bran. We're going to get very deep into the little symbolism and the very minutiae details of Bran because we got some pretty huge revelations in the show about him and a lot of other characters too and and speaking of the show another really important thing we're going to do is we're going to dispel show habits things that we've all kind of forgotten because the show taught us wrong uh, from the perspective of the books meaning some things are kind of obvious right like Tyrion's appearance Tyrion's missing his nose and he's not a handsome man like Peter Dinklage that's one that we all kind of realize that's not a that's not one's like oh yeah Tyrion but there's sneakier ones like Bran looks like a Stark in the show, but in the books, he looks like a Tully. He's got red hair, auburn red hair, and blue eyes. Small thing, but it matters. And another good example there is no one forgot that the Targaryens have purple eyes, even though the show doesn't have that. But eye color does matter. We pay more attention to things like eye color. It has more meaning. And... Another example would be just certain characters, certain characterizations. Like, Sandor Clegane is a perfect example you know how many times in the show he says the C word, you know, the one that rhymes with hunt? A lot, right? How many times does he say it in the books? Big fat zero. Nothing. Never. It's not like he's not insulting or abrasive. He just isn't quite so vulgar, and he's more complex. He cries, right? This is different. He's a different character. I'm not complaining about the show Hound, but Book Hound is a different character, even though he has a lot in common with show Hound. And you can like them both, but recognize those differences. We're also going to be looking a lot at lines you missed, char characterizations that have different meaning the second time around. For example, 
uh, one we'll get to next time that that people have been pointing out only in the last few years. Well, for the most part, there's certainly people who caught it probably way back in the day in the 90s. The line that Robert says when John, when uh, Ned is talking to him about kings in the north, and, John, and Robert says, "Oh, the kings and the, they're, they're hiding under the snow, snow." And he yells it basically, "Snow, kings hiding under snow." Hello, John Snow reference, right? It's a perfect example of the Valar rereader's concept too, and and what George had in mind. And and anyone who's been with us long enough knows that I love to hammer away on this part point that George gives us the riddle to. The question, or gives us the riddle to, or the answer to a riddle before he actually gives the riddle itself. One of those is coming up here in this very second chapter. I'll, ref- I'll remind you all of it when we get to it. So, by ignoring or giving less attention to the, say, the murder of John Aaron, to use that uh, example again, and digging deeper into Bran's foreshadowing and John's foreshadowing and all this other stuff. It's more like we're looking at the third and fourth layers of the material and acknowledging the first two layers. If you want to use the uh, onion analogy of of a story having many layers, which does work pretty well, especially because of the onion knight who we all love. And we'll also be talking about not just foreshadowing from HBO and The Winds of Winter, but Fire and Blood. I forgot to mention that before. Fire and Blood has a lot of relevance to A Song of Ice and Fire, new stuff. We get to take all that into account, too. So we're taking into account HBO. We're taking into account Fire and Blood. We're taking into account The Winds of Winter. And we're taking into account just new theories that people have put out into the fandom. So many other things. If you can't tell already, even even though I've said it already, I'm so excited. Another note about formatting here. It's going to be chapter, take questions. Chapter, Take questions. Chapter, take questions. So it should be fairly organized and straightforward in that regard. So Shea is monitoring the chat for questions. If you're catching this after the fact, send them to us at westroshistory at gmail.com or tweet them at us. It's Westeros History on Twitter. And of course, you can always go to the Facebook group, which I've already recommended. You may have the UK edition. You may be reading it on Kindle. You may be following along on Audible. So I'm going to give a couple of different ways every episode for y'all to make sure you're with us. Besides the posted schedule, which has the name of each chapter, there's also some links we've posted in, on these various sites where we're keeping Valerie Reed's material. So make sure you get a hold of that if you're uh, trying to follow along perfectly. Like, and also, you don't have to follow the schedule. Read at your own pace. We're going to try to emphasize certain chapters and tell people that only certain chapters are or certain chapters are more important, like the, the most important chapter out of each batch. Another thing we'll be doing in each episode is pointing out some of the famous lines, like in this prologue. We all love that line, dance with me then. It's just a great, it's a great example of the way George writes, where he has this character that we're immediately dis- predisposed to dislike. Waymar Royce is a little jerk. <laughs> He's arrogant. He talks down to people who have experience. It's not, it's not much to like. But right away, he gives us this gray characterization of this guy who we, we don't really like. But he, was a, he fought like uh, Will says in that moment. He was a boy no longer. He was a man of the Night's Watch. I mean, it's epic. It's yeah, it is epic, right? And beautiful. Yeah, it's it is really good. Oh, this is what this, this is the kind of story we're in for now, huh? <laughs> and it's terrifying. It's horror. That's something that gets me is that I was a fantasy fan when I when I came to Game of Thrones. I wasn't really a horror fan. I would rate it low in terms of my favorite genres. That's changed a lot over the years. I read Game of Thrones a long time ago for the first time, and my opinions have changed over those preceding almost twenty years. But But George R. R. Martin gets a lot of credit for that because he mixed fantasy and horror. And of course, zombies and undead creatures are nothing new in fantasy. I've seen all that before. But George wrote it in a way that was that you really felt it. The terror was more palpable. He just does it better, (laughs) frankly. Not than anyone. A good example is Lovecraft. Lovecraft writes fear extremely well, too. And there's no doubt George's influence from H.P. Lovecraft is in this first chapter. The theme of fear is overwhelming. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? There's themes of duty. Will's duty to warn Waymar is really important, but he's afraid to. He, he and it didn't even matter. The other didn't sneak up on Will on uh, Waymar. Didn't stab him in the back. They had a face-to-face duel. So here's one of our first examples of breaking show habits in the show. The others are portrayed a bit differently. The way they behave is similar, but the way they look. Some things are very similar. Some things are very not. The book version, they're beautiful. They're elegant. They're graceful. In the show, 
They're just like old guys that are move like young guys. They're they're they look ancient. They don't look beautiful. They do not look elegant. They look terrifying. Not that beautiful and elegant can't be terrifying, but they just went a different they went a little more straightforward with the look for the show. And I can kind of understand that. I mean, they look like decrepit in the the show. They look. Yeah, they look. Yeah. I mean, they're ice zombies, which is very different. With the wrinkles and... Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And I think maybe they... They look straight out of Tales from the Crypt. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be hard to make them elegant, too, right? That's just hard to pull off. Showing them walk on the snow without leaving tracks, that would have just been hard to pull off, I think. But, uh, so like, this isn't a complaint. It's, it, whenever we point to show book differences, nine times out of ten, it's not to complain, even though I might have a complaint. But that doesn't... That's not where I'm going with it. Just to remind us of the differences. That's the point here. And another important thing is, originally, they were going to have the others speak in the show. They even had David J. Peterson, who wrote the language for High Valyrian and Dothraki. They had him work up a scroth, which is the uh, White Walker language. They decided not to use it, though. But it's important for us, and it's important to know, uh, and for us to key into these details, since they weren't in the show. They speak. Here's an example. Here's a quote. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, and the words were mocking. And later, there's a quote. Far beneath him, he heard their voices and laughter sharp as icicles. So uh, they have a culture. They have language. They laugh. This is the reminder that they used to be people. And... We know now, at least if the show is accurate, that they were made by the children of the forest. I imagine the making of them will vary. It probably won't be as simple as jamming a dragonglass shard into their heart. But dragonglass might be involved. After all, dragonglass does undo the others. And that may have been a feature that the children built in when they designed them. That's something that we still didn't really get much information on in the show. So that's still a mystery. And another thing that that's described about them george calls them like the sidhe which is a I don't, i'm probably not saying that right s-i-d-h-e it's a celtic word and it refers to uh it's like a, a whole thing of forest creatures fairies it's a whole irish celtic thing and george had that in mind when he uh, when he thought of how to describe them one description he gave to an, an artist was that their armor reflects everything around them. And you see that as Will at first questions what he's seeing. He sees them coming and then maybe it's part denial because he's afraid to admit that he just saw the others. But that also that he, they're so camouflaged that he wasn't even sure what he saw. A question that's asked about them a lot is whether the cold comes with them or if they come with the cold. And I think it's answered right in this first chapter. The line is written, Sir Waymar may have felt the cold that came with them, but he never saw them, never heard them. And that feels right to me as well. Later, Sir Waymar, before he actually sees the first other, he says he's yelling for Will to answer him and says, why is it so cold? He's getting frustrated, but it's also his fear speaking. And so the cold comes on right when the others arrive. So I, I kind of doubt that the, the others just knew that it was going to get cold and showed up right then. No, it seems that they bring the cold. That, it isn't, it's not a chicken and an egg kind of question. It, it may seem that way to people south of the wall, but right here we get that answer. They bring it with them. And that makes sense in other ways, too. We've seen that. That also explains, for example, why those men froze. Right? That's a big conundrum right here in this chapter. Will and Waymar argue about it. Waymar makes a good logical argument as to why the wildlings could not have frozen to death. The wall was weeping. Right? He's got a point there. But that's logic that doesn't incorporate the magic of the others. <laughs> so they did freeze to death. It was the cold of the others as best as we can tell. They weren't chopped into bits like they were in the show. Another thing to remember, they were literally just not moving. When Will comes back to report what he saw, they're just sitting there frozen, even the person up in the tree. Yeah, that's magical cold. That's like what Waymar himself pointed out. These were healthy men with the means to make fire, and they didn't, but they weren't stabbed either. The only explanation is the cold, even though Waymar argues his party out of it because without magic, it doesn't make sense. One theory that's out there is that 
the from it's been around a while. Joe Magician is the latest person to bring it up, and he had new takes on it. It wasn't he's not recycling an old theory by any means. He has definitely new things to say about it, which is that the others may or may not be hunting for the prince that was promised or Jon Snow, or maybe that's the same thing. And they may have thought that Waymar was that. And this one of the reasons why people think that is because they pause and they take a look. Because he looks like a first man as well. He's a, of House Royce. He has the gray eyes. He looks a little bit like a Stark, but not really like a Stark, just like a first man. The Starks have a look, the first men have a look, and the Royces have a look, and there's similarity between all three of them. But they're not all the same thing. It's not, those aren't three statements that all say the same thing. They just all have some things in common, because they're all first men. And of course, the part of this notation is because they look at the sword. When Waymar and the other come together, the other pauses for a second to look at his sword. Whether the other thinks it's Lightbringer or Valyrian Steel or whatever, it's an interesting moment where there's a moment of consideration by this thing that's clearly outmatching Waymar. But he still has this moment of caution, and that's very, very interesting. Another thing I want to point out, is that there are six others in this spot here. Six of them. One that comes up to fight, and then the other five that stand and watch and don't interfere until Will is done, until he's got a shard of sword in his face, and he's screaming and done, and they all come and chop him to bits. So there's six of them. And then in the next chapter, we get six direwolves. One apart from the other five. I don't know if that's intentional, but... Six isn't usually a number you see paired like that. You see threes and sevens and twelves and thirteens and even numbers like ten and twenty and fifty. Six, eh, not as much. Do you see that one? It might have been intentional. Definitely worth considering. Now, as in terms of their equipment, the sword itself, not Waymar's sword, but the other's swords. Quote, no human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. Yeah, and George has also been quoted as saying that the others can do things with ice that humans have never conceived of. And... That's what's going on with both their armor and then and it's with its incredible reflective qualities and these razor thin swords that can shatter real swords. Castle castle forged steel. Will remarks on how it's a really nice sword that Waymar has, and as they're fighting, Waymar's sword starts to pick up frost, which is really creepy when you think about it because frost building up on something that's constantly being hammered into something else like two blades ramming into each other you don't frost doesn't collect on something that's being hammered like that so much jostling and jolting that's just showing you how cold it is which is yet more evidence that the others bring the cold with them that's magical cold happening right there on that sword that is not natural a couple of random notifications here that we picked up no, random notes like I said we'd love to keep an eye on the historical tidbits of course not a whole lot of that in this first chapter when George is just trying to give you the setting you know the first house mentioned is House Royce though that's cool and Waymar's sword again comes up the broken hilt is probably shows up in a storm in a dance with dragons many many books later when the wildlings are turning over their collected wealth to John so they can buy food with it one of them turns in a, a sword with a broken blade that has jewels in the hilt. And that could be Waymar's sword because there's uh, jewels in the hilt of his sword. And we know that the short sword shattered. So, yeah, could be. Another interesting tidbit I ca caught here was the first mention of the word Ironwood. If you don't know the significance of Ironwood, well, there was that Telltale Games game that was set in uh, Westeros. Uh, mostly uh, it was mostly a tv setting but it it had book and tv crossover stuff it was a really solid game it had voices by a lot of the real actors there was peter dinklage and natalie dormer and other people yeah but house forester lived by the ironwoods yeah up and, in the north and so a lot of people were wondering hey is ironwood is that a real thing is are ironwoods really in a song of ice and fire and is that is a real house yes and yes they certainly expanded on the Ironwood story for the game and made it a little more fantastical. But Ironwood absolutely is a thing. It's here in this first chapter. It's here in the second chapter. It's in the second chapter twice. Ironwood is mentioned about eight times in the first two books and then doesn't appear again until 
book five. It's of mentioned course, only 12 times total. Of course, it does make you wonder about Ironwood, the house in Dorne as well, which is spelled <laughs> differently if there's any relation at all. Yeah, it does make you wonder. It definitely does. And in fact, the Ironwood stump is where uh, Garrett is executed. And in Ironwood is up where the woman who froze to death up in the tree that Will was careful to not be seen by, that was an Ironwood as well. Now, there's also more coverage of this chapter in our Aziz versus A Game of Thrones prologue episode. And that was, of course, made years ago. So, of course, we didn't take into account King Bran or others and things like that. But we wouldn't have needed to. King Bran isn't relevant to the prologue. Bran's not in the prologue. <laughs> but it's still worth it uh, to check that out, even though it's uh, not fully up to date. But it's mostly there. We haven't learned that much more about the others since then, right? <laughs> there are six others, like I said, in this first scene. How many others are there in the entire rest of the books? Less than six. There's the one Sam faces. And there's certainly some others that are Fewer. referenced. Fewer. <laughs> Got me. Got me. Got me good. <laughs> and yeah, so that's... I can't even talk. She got me too good. I'm speechless. The last line of the chapter is, They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. So here in the first chapter, we get ice and blood instead of fire and blood. <laughs> and you definitely get that horror, feel, the horror uh, chapter element with the way that chapter ends. Ho! Oh, this dude's being strangled to death by a zombie that just came out of nowhere. And, well, we're off, aren't we? That's the prologue. Okay, anyways. First questions here from the prologue from Stephanie the Peerless. Do you think it's significant that Will never mentioned seeing children at the Wildling encampment? I just wondered if the others could have taken them like they take Craster's children. I also think it's interesting that the other fought Waymar one and one, but also that it seems like he could have shattered Waymar's sword at any time, but let Waymar fight until he was tired before this happened. It seems they have an honor code of some sort, and the big question, why do they all dip their swords in Waymar's blood after he dies? Any ideas? Okay, so one at a time. It is interesting not to... I, I don't think it's significant that there's no children there because they were what, raiders. This, they were chasing raiders, so I wouldn't expect this wildling group to have children. And it, maybe they do seem to have a code of honor, just fighting one at a time like that. They didn't stab him in the back. They easily could have. On the other hand, it's not really honorable if you know that this person is no contest, <laughs> which it does seem to be. Like the other... It didn't really ever seem like there was a, a real fight. I think the other may have been toying with him. And as far as how the sword could broke, break, I'm not sure that it could do it at any time. It may have, the cold may have been building up, but it may be just as you say, which would fit with what I just said about them toying with him. They were just like, oh, I'm going to play with you, toy sword fight a little bit. And now we're done. I'm like breaking your sword and that's it. Yeah, something like that. As for dipping their, their swords in his blood, I don't know if there's anything magical to that. It could be, though, but it might be a, a cultural thing. A lot of warrior code type situations where you have the blood of your enemies as face paint or you drink it or you eat their heart or something like that. Something kind of out there. But it does seem like they wanted to do it. Maybe just a way to add to the horror. I'm not sure. But it's a good question to keep an eye on. It might be something that we get an answer for later. That's one of those things we just haven't learned. Even with the show and everything, we still don't really know that much about how the others work. It's, it's one of these things that we still are very in the dark on. Craig Christian asks, if people haven't actually heard the cracking of ice on a lake, look for it on YouTube. It sounds like nothing like you'd think. Really eerie. Good call, Craig Christian. Yeah, that's, that's a very good idea because that is how the description of the other's voice sounds, like cracking of ice. And I imagine that once you hear that sound played for real and then keep it in your mind when you're reading bits about the others, probably added the effect. Well, let's move on to Brand 1. Brand 1 Seven, there's seven brand chapters in a Game of Thrones, 21 total brand chapters. This chapter has nine pages in the U.S. paperback edition, eight pages in the U.K. edition. So it's a little bit short, but not too short. The average chapter length in a Game of Thrones is 10.9. The first line is, this, The morning had dawned clear and cold with a crispness that hinted at the end of, end of summer, eh? <laughs> Ninth year of summer is also said right away here in these opening chapters, or paragraphs, rather, and it says that it's the seventh of Bran's life. So Bran has not experienced winter yet. Right away, we get one of these really awesome concepts that plays out much later in the books. It's delved into later in the books, but it's presented to us right here. 
Rob and Bran both think the, the person that's about to get executed is a wildling. He had lost both ears and finger to frostbite, and he dressed all in black, the same as a brother of the Night's Watch, except that his furs were ragged and greasy. So he is a brother of the Night's Watch. And yes, the same as a brother of the Night's Watch. A human being is a human being, no matter what side of the wall he or she is standing on. That's something that John learns very well later, that a lot of these stories, and these stories come right away here in this chapter. It's like fourth paragraph where Bran starts thinking about others consorting with ghouls and their women sleep with the others. This is all this over-the-top stuff that we know is not really true. There's a grain of truth to some of it, but most of it is not true. That facade is torn back and you realize, hey, the, the, the wildlings and the brothers of the Night's Watcher, they're all just people. And it's not explained that well here because it's not meant to be. It's an introduction to that concept. But we know we're rereading. We see it right here in this first chapter. And bam, George got us into that right away. But that's nothing compared to what else is in this chapter. Whew. This was one of the first things I wanted to look at right after the revelation that Bran's going to be king. Because... Immediately, you think back to these early chapters. I remember, again, since I've been in the fandom so long, I remember when we all started going back and looking at all the, oh, let's look for foreshadowing of Bran becoming a greenseer. And it was there, here in this first chapter. But we mistook it. We thought it was greenseer foreshadowing. And it is. But it's also king foreshadowing. The two have a lot in common. It enables George to wrap one up in the other sneakily. Because... Greenseers are powerful. It's a very powerful thing. And you look down on the world and, and see the little people doing their jobs, which is something that comes up in brand two. We'll talk about that more later. So it's all right here. It just starts right here, but it's not power necessarily here in this first chapter. That's not really discussed. It's rulership themes, the conflict of being a ruler and how difficult it is and how these decisions really matter and what route you can take and what attitude you have to have to be a ruler and what kind of ruler you'll be. Boom, right? At the end of Game of Thrones, that fear versus love dichotomy of ruling is huge. And it's right here in this first chapter. Ned's justice, it seems fair, especially because it's couched in this personal judgment thing where the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. That seems honorable, right? But we know there's a little more to it because we saw this dude run off from the others, something that Ned doesn't even entertain the possibility of in the next chapter with Catelyn. Catelyn says, is it the wildlings? And she says, she seems a little skeptical. And Ned's like, well, who else could it be? Well, we saw who it could be, the others. But why would Ned consider that? But there's also detachment. And that's an important aspect of considering duty and justice versus mercy. He had a grim cast to his gray eyes this day. And he seemed not at all the man who would sit before the fire in the evening and talk softly of the age of heroes and the children of the forest. He had taken off father's face, Bran thought, and donned the face of the Lord Stark of Winterfell. Yeah, and that comes up later, too. Rob starts to put on his brave, lordly face when they're arguing about keeping the direwolves alive later, which is meant to be, but not overtly expressed as a dichotomy here, meaning the two different scenes are both execution scenes. It doesn't seem like execution for the direwolves because they're animals and you don't think of animals as being executed. That's not usually the way we think of killing animals. But it's the same concept. You have duty to the realm. Ned points out that it's not as simple as being uh, lost to fear. The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken, so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. So, sure, we can have sympathy for this guy because he just saw an 8,000-year-old evil come back to life, and it may have literally magically affected his mind, as in it was, it was supernatural magic in his head driving him to be so afraid, not just regular human fear. We're not clear. I'm not saying it's definitely what happened, but it's definitely possible. And how is that fair to execute a man for desertion when he's literally lost his mind? Is that fair? I don't know. It's probably not fair, but it still might be the right thing to do. Because as Ned said, again, the deserter knows his life is forfeit and he will not flinch from any crime. So, yes, you can see the mercy angle here and say this guy is out of his own mind. He has no control. On the other hand, the fact that he's out of his mind is part of why you have to kill him because he, he's a danger to others. And that dichotomy is still there with the direwolves. It's the same argument. Ned says, nah, 
They look cute now, but a full-grown dire wolf is savage, terrifying, can rip an arm off someone's shoulder. Yet, no one speaks up for Garrett. There's no one around to love Garrett. He's, his mind is gone. He's, we don't even hear the dialogue. In the show, we hear him talk. But in the book, we don't. It's just words were exchanged, and Bran doesn't remember them. Because from his perspective, they weren't terribly important. But the idea is that the man was hardly uh, coherent. And it's super important. The eye, look in his eyes. This is another big dichotomy and big rulership theme. He had seen the ragged man's eyes, and he was thinking of them now. And then a, a little bit passes by, and Ned asks Bran. He say, he sees that Bran is a little is thoughtful or maybe disturbed, and he knows it's his first time seeing justice done. And remember, the, the first part of the fear theme comes right away when John tells Bran not to look away. Don't be afraid. Make sure you watch. And... Then they're arguing about how it went. Rob says the man died bravely, but John says he was afraid. What do you think? His father asked. And this is so cool. Bran doesn't form his own opinion quickly. Even after his father asks, what do you think? He still doesn't answer. He asks another question. He says, can, I, can a man still be brave when he's afraid or if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. That seminal, awesome line. Such a great line. But it has so much more meaning now on reread, doesn't it? Because, well, just because that's the only time you, a man can be brave, well, it doesn't mean you can be brave in the face of fear. It doesn't mean there's other issues. So it's super deep. Now, back to the fear versus love dichotomy. There's no one that loves Garrett. No one stands up for him. But Bran stands up for the direwolves. This is a good example of over-the-top symbolism, hiding much more subtle themes. It's probably Bloodraven, right? <laughs> Especially if you look at the map. We still haven't seen another direwolf in A Song of Ice and Fire. The only thing we hear, the only closeness we even get to that is Benjen mentioning that we sometimes hear them howling in the distance when we're ranging. That's it. That's the only other evidence of direwolves anywhere in the entire story. And yet, all of a sudden, each Stark just gets a badass wolf protector just right at the beginning of the story. Not only is there blood raven, it's meant to be over the top so the character can notice it. In the next chapter, Catelyn uh, says, wait, antler, wolf throat, Robert Baratheon, stag, wolf, us coming north, hello. But she doesn't say anything. <laughs> Not that it would have necessarily mattered if she had, but it's interesting. So, another thing that Bran learns, and this is super important again, because this whole chapter, again, fear versus love, mercy versus duty and justice, Bran's being taught these lessons. And that's a huge difference because we know, or not just a huge difference, it's telling because we know that Rob got the same lessons and John, because they're older than Bran. But Danny, who we're going to get to next week, she doesn't get any of this. In her initial arc we see she's just abused by her brother and lied to by illyrio and sold to and even in there she's observant notices all these lies but she's no one teaches her about mercy and duty and justice most of what she ever learns about all that is completely self-taught completely within her and that's really cool but it shows you that well bran had a better head start on this he got a good father to teach him all this stuff in an environment over time where he could think about it and ask questions and get good, respectable answers from someone who knows what's going on. Someone that's not going to lie to him. Someone that might, someone who isn't perfect. Dad's not perfect. Not all of his advice is perfect. But contrast to Danny, where people are just constantly lying and scheming. She doesn't have any reason to trust just about any of them, especially the guy most in charge of, of her well-being immediately, Viserys, who is clearly not looking out for her good. Whereas Bran has this wonderful family that's protective, that's looking after him. His brothers are teaching him. His John is looking out for him. Ned comes up to him right after and asks him, hey, Bran, how you doing? How is it? How does it? How is it seeing your first man killed? What was that like for you? Talking through it. We're Danny is just, people are killed at her wedding. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> it's very different. It's very, very different. So all these lessons, one important part of the lesson here, I'm going to quote, if you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. He's just given that lesson 
And then they cross the bridge. By the way, the bridge has ironwood planks. So it's symbolic. They cross the bridge from the execution to, to the other side. And here are these dire wolves. Immediately a test of mercy versus duty. So again, I'll repeat that Ned says deserters are dangerous. And you get that repetition here in the theme that clearly dire wolves are dangerous too. And they're foreign to the realm too, aren't they? Now think about that lesson for a burgeoning king, the kind of conflict that a king would have or a queen, any ruler would have. When you have a realm, when you have foreigners, innocent, helpless foreigners that are in your realm, not doing any harm, but that people are scared of. And so that alone can cause problems. It's not their fault, but it's still something that has to be dealt with because people are scared of them. Xenophobia, right? whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use, racism, prejudice, it's something that a ruler has to deal with. And that's a tough thing to deal with, right? Imagine much later down the story when we're, we're, a lot of new people are going to come to Westeros, Dothraki, Unsullied, Relorists, just people from Essos of all kinds, the Golden Company, some of whom are from places besides Westeros, and we're certainly not raised there. What's going to happen? That's going to be a test for any king or queen or ruler to how to deal with your own people's racism. And the racism of foreigners, potentially, as well. <laughs> uh, it implies that if you're willing to move somewhere where you're not the minority race, you're not the majority race, that you're uh, not as scared or that you aren't racist. But still, these things come up. And that's, uh, and here, here comes the fear theme in all of that. A big reason people fear foreigners is because they're strange and unknown. And the fear of the unknown is one of the most deep, seated types of fears that human beings have. And look at this revisionist attitude from some of these characters. Hullen, who is the master of horse, says, it'd be a mercy to kill them. A mercy to kill them. What? <laughs> Why? Why would it be a mercy to kill them? It might be a mercy to other people. Like Ned said, if they're allowed to grow big and full size, they could just kill people. But that's still not a mercy to them. Hmm. Bran looked to his lord father for rescue, but only got a frown, a furrowed brow. Hullen speaks truly, son. Better a swift death than a hard one from cold and starvation. Okay, so that's a better argument, starvation. But are they going to starve? I guess so, because they're wolf pups that haven't even opened their eyes. Their mother can't take care of them. But the fear is everywhere, and Bran is aware of it. Here's the line. Even Bran could sense their fear, though he did not understand. And because that's why he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why they're afraid of puppies. His childlike attitude is kind of correct. He doesn't he hasn't learned these fears that the other, uh, these other men have that really aren't justified. Born with the dead is one line he hears because they may have been we they may have been whelped after the wolf died. They may have come forth. And that to the superstitious uh, people is is a bad sign. It's a bad omen. So they're trying to justify killing these little animals with their by using superstition and fear. But superstition cuts both ways, doesn't it? And what is a greater duty to the realm than a duty to the gods? That's the one thing that can trump your duty to the realm, which is what Ned thinks of. First of all, duty is really important to him. But when John brings up the point that there's exactly three male direwolves and two female direwolves, and those exactly match his kids and exactly match the gender of those kids, Bran saw his father's face change, saw the other men exchange glances. He loved John with all his heart at that moment. Even at seven, Bran understood what his brother had done. The count had come right only because John had omitted himself. When have we recently seen John omit himself from something he had a right to? Hmm. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure this is foreshadowing for that, but it's definitely stuck out of me as a possibility because John had omitted himself. <laughs> Can I say uh, two things? Yeah, absolutely. One, say more than two De if you De like. Debbie underscore Dane said, another mother dying around birthing. So many. Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think of the direwolf. You're right. Danny's mom, yeah. Tyrion's mom, John's mom, and the direwolf mom. Yes, and the direwolf mom. <laughs> so that really cracked me up. But also with the the genders of the the sex of the different direwolves. Who checked him? Yeah, they were able to tell pretty quickly. I guess the Master of Hounds was there right okay, away. He just okay. knew. Maybe he checked him. I was just wondering who of the group was doing yeah. that. Anyways, that was very minor. <laughs> very true. So Bran's thoughts on John are go beyond this too. And I want to point out the love theme here. He loved John for doing that. And of course, Bran's 
main motivation here is that he immediately loved these puppies and immediately thought they deserved mercy and did not see the logic behind killing them. Even though he didn't necessarily have the experience to have seen that logic, he didn't agree with his father on it. And, well, we know what happens. And there's another great little uh, answer before the riddle moment here. It's one of my favorite examples to just of this concept. I've, I know I've said it before in the podcast, but probably not recently. Maybe I have. It bears repeating though. Okay. So after they've gone back across, they've, they're crossing this bridge. They're halfway across and no one can hear anything, but John stops and says, Hey, do you hear that? And Bran specifically stops and listens. And you get the description of what he hears. He hears the brook and the, the wind and nothing. He doesn't hear anything. And John goes back and gets ghost. Comes back and he's like, aha, I found this one. And Bran thought it curious that this pup alone would have opened his eyes while the others were still blind. Earlier in the chapter, Bran sings to himself, John's eyes were gray so dark they seemed almost black, but there was little they did not see. So there's your connection already. You've got John, who is more observant than his uh, rest of his family, which is explained in his first chapter. And it's because he's a bastard, because he has to, he's left out of things more often, so he has to pay more attention, and lo he's looking from the outside more often. He's put in the observer position more often. And But it's the same, it's that concept of opening his eyes sooner. The other thing that John says in his first chapter is that, ba that bastards grow up faster. Well, here you go. John, uh, the ghost opened his eyes first, growing up faster. Boom. But the real trick here is that John heard ghost, <laughs> which is, as we know, he didn't hear ghost. He did not hear ghost. No one hears ghost. Ghost never makes a sound. That is, we all, and we only know that because we have five books of evidence of ghost never making a sound. And you don't know that right away. You can't have, oh, look at that white wolf. He must never make a sound. <laughs> How would you possibly know that? <laughs> because he's white and has red eyes. He clearly never makes a sound. And so there's no way for you to know that here. There's no way to catch that John wasn't hearing the wolf. It was in his head. It was the skin changer bond. It may have been, Bloodraven may have been like, whoa, hey, y'all forgot one. And he sent a little, I don't know, brain email to John, however that works, just sent a little message that, hey, well, hold on, hold on, bark, bark, woof, woof, don't you hear that? Go back. <laughs> and, uh, and there we go. Mm. Very cool. And of course, the last line of the chapter is, or last two lines, really, or three lines, is Jon Snow gave his father's ward a long, chilling look. I think not, Greyjoy, he said. This one belongs to me. And that's in response to Theon saying, this one will die even sooner than the others. And of course, right away, we see what a little jerk Theon is <laughs> and how people don't like him. So we know we're not meant to like him, and we can judge that for ourselves. But other tidbits here. As I pointed out earlier, there's differences in the way the characters look from book to show. And in some cases, and in fact, most cases, it doesn't really matter that much, but it's still interesting to point out to Rob in, in the books is thick and auburn haired and blue eyed, strong and fast. Is that well, thick with two C's? Yes, that Three is thick C's? with two C's. <laughs> Whereas John is slender, graceful and quick. In the show, they're both kind of slender, graceful and quick. We actually don't ever see Rob fight, but he's slender and graceful and Maybe he's quick, <laughs> but he's definitely not thick, nor auburn haired, nor blue eyed. And he doesn't even look that strong. Well, he looks like I said, looks like slender and graceful, like more like John. So they're kind of uh, not op opposites, but it's this fast, quick dichotomy. And it, you see it play out right away because they race. They go off into a race. Uh, they say race to the bridge and John gets the head start because he's quick. But Rob finds the direwolves first, which may indicate he actually won the race. Anyway, he certainly crossed that bridge first in the metaphorical death sense, and he did die before John, <laughs> assuming John comes back. And we get the same dichotomy comes up in Fire and Blood as well with, what is it, Aemon and Balon. One of them is strong and fast, and the other is quick and slender and graceful, etc. So it's uh, kind of repeated uh, in Fire and Blood. We have a sword called ice, this huge great sword called ice that we're told is Valyrian steel. At this point, we don't really know what Valyrian steel is yet. We get a little more info in Kat's chapter, but we just know it's this big, fancy, huge, I said big already, but it, it needs to be said twice because it's really, really quite large. It's what he does the execution with. And it's neat that it's called ice, which we've just seen these other swords, which I don't know if the others name their swords, but they're more like ice than this one is. This is more like frozen fire. It's Valyrian steel forged in the super 
hotted, hotted? <laughs> heated flames of, uh, well, however they do it with dragon fire and, and spells and, and such and sacrifice. <laughs> hmm. How about that? And I also want to do something just a simple, a uh, little bit of map looking. We're not going to actually look at the map necessarily, but just you can look at it on your own. Just look how far the wall is to Winterfell. And this execution was played out. They rode there, did it, and came back. So it wasn't that far from Winterfell. It was a day's journey at most. Like, I don't even think it got nighttime during that. So unless Garrod was brought south for execution by a different lord, which is entirely possible, he fled. He got pretty far before he got caught, it seems. Same goes for the mother direwolf. That direwolf was really far south, right? They were like, wow, a direwolf south of the wall. But really, it's more than that. It's direwolf south of the wall all the way down here. Winterfall is not close to the wall. Remember how long it takes John and Tyrion to go there after the feast and all that, after John decides to go there. That's a pretty big deal. So let's take a few questions. Talking about the first line of the chapter, abort consciousness. That's the username here, I assume. That's the line Martin wanted to write down when he started, I believe, if someone hasn't mentioned that. Already. Yes, yes. The first line of the chapter. Yeah, that's a good little meta here. It's the first scene George ever imagined. He had been on Hadrian's Wall and thought about the, the, the wall and the, the brothers or the, the Roman legionaries who must have been gazing into that dark north and wondering what was out there. And it, it inspired him. But he also had this moment where he imagined this execution scene in the snow. And it was from Bran's perspective. And that was the first chapter of A Song of Ice and Fire that they got an idea for. Originally, it was going to be a short story, but of course, it became a trilogy. Now it's seven, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. So that's very cool. He managed to keep that original seed in his first chapter. And that's something that's going to come up a lot too, by the way, as an aside. Some of George's original plans popping up in these early chapters, and some of them are false lights now. False foreshadowing. They do not apply anymore. But none of those are here that I can see. We, they are coming. Question here is, are ironwoods like werewoods? The stump drank the blood eagerly, it says. That's a quote. Do you think we'll see Bran pass a sentence and swing the sword? We've seen Rob and John do it. Arya has her kill list and does this later in books. I suppose Sansa might have something to do with Littlefinger's death, and I'm not sure Rickon will live long enough, but since we learn about this first man tradition from Ned and Bran's chapter, I just wonder if there's a chance we might see Bran do this. It'd be kind of hard for him to swing the sword himself if he's crippled. He isn't even learning to use one, but maybe Hodor is still alive and can do that. I kind of doubt it. I kind of think Hodor is not going to survive beyond the wall. The show kind of taught us that. It may or it may be true. Maybe uh, maybe he dies some other way, but we're definitely getting a hold the door chapter or scene at some point. And that's probably not in the tree. There's probably not a door in the tree, even though the phrasing is used that there's a doorway, but it's not a it's a doorway, not a door. So we'll see about that. So I doubt that Bran will be able to swing the sword himself, which is an interesting kind of stepping back from what he was taught. On the other hand, if he's king of Westeros, he can't just rule like a northerner. He's got to rule collectively. He's got to take into account northern attitudes and southern attitudes, which, by the way, that's part of why it's important that he has blue eyes and red hair. It's a reminder that he's got half Tully blood. He is a mix of north and south. It's him as well as perhaps what he will be. And I like the color symbolism there, too. Let's just say this is tinfoil-ish, not because it's not supported, but because it's just one guess out of many possibilities. Let's say King's Landing is entirely annihilated, blows up, burns down, whatever. Whether or not the Iron Throne is still there, separate question, perhaps. But where do you set up as a king if there's no more capital? Do you build? Maybe Bran ends up Isle of Faces or, or in Harrenhal near the Isle of Faces. Well, then you, there's your color symbolism. The three colors of the trident, red, blue, and green. So Bran could be a green seer king with blue eyes and red hair sitting there at the fort near the near where the trident empties out into the sea. So that could be intentional. It could just be the colors line up nicely by accident. Up to y'all to decide on your own. Interpret it how you will. From, from Debbie Dane, maybe Bloodraven didn't want Bran to go south. From Brian Eidolon. Hey there, Brian. Shout out to Westeros, an American musical. He wrote, he and his uh, some friends rewrote Hamilton for A Song of Ice and Fire. You can find it online. We attended in person at Ice and Fire Con, and it was so good. We laughed, we cried, and I'm not exaggerating. He says, Brian does, that Brian is both Stark and Tully. His is the Song of Ice and 
melted ice. <laughs> yes, yes. Not exactly fire in there. The air is kind of a stretch. <laughs> it's just red hair. They don't even call them kissed by fire because it's auburn. It's not really full red, but it's reddish. So Debbie Dane says maybe Bloodraven didn't want Bran to go south. This is another thing that really is blowing up in my mind over the past few months. The dichotomy in the way we just saw. What we just saw in Bran's chapter is that he he's more of a love and mercy kind of guy. That's what we can expect from him as a ruler, I think, if this first cha- chapter is any indication. And I think it is. But Bloodraven is so much not. Bloodraven is a ends justify the means guy. He's a killing people to create peace is totally justified. He has a much different attitude towards ruling than Bran does. And that's going to be interesting if they clash on these things. Bloodraven is not the kind of mentor that Ned was. And I don't mean that because he's 125 years old and magical. That's not, Of course, that's a different kind of mentoring. That's obvious. I just mean their attitudes towards these things. Bloodraven wasn't really an honorable guy. That doesn't mean he was a bad guy. It doesn't mean he wasn't a good guy. I think he was overall had his mind on justice and duty and protecting the realm. But there's definitely some criticisms to be laid at his feet for how he went about doing that. And if he and Bran don't agree on a lot of these things, I really wonder how that could break out. Could they disagree? Could we get to the point where some of these tinfoil theories about Bloodraven trying to body snatch Bran, could that be true? Eh, maybe. Problem with that theory is I think is Bran is clearly more powerful than Bloodraven, even though he's not experiencing his powers. I don't think Bloodraven can do that. I don't think he has that capacity. But I could be wrong, and if not, well, I won't be surprised. If I am, rather, I won't be surprised because this theory's been put out there already. What's coming up? I'm always going to try to give you guys a little bit of head start on what's coming. I want to tell you what to look for. So when you're reading the next set of chapters, you have some things in mind to be paying attention to. So you don't just catch it here on the podcast afterwards. That way, if you're if you know what to look for ahead of time, you may have more questions for us and more engagement. Also, it's just more fun to have me tour guide for you a little bit and tell you what to look for. And a lot of you guys are going to pop in with things to point out as well. Once y'all get in this in the in this pattern that we're setting out here, once everyone gets used to this format of Valar Reredus, y'all will start contributing more as well. And I'm really looking forward to that because that's really a big part of the fun. Doing this as a group is more fun than us just sitting down and telling you what we think of every chapter, which is a totally fine way to do it. But that's part of why we're doing it differently, is we really like the interaction. But again, we don't want too much interaction, like we said at the beginning. That's why these live streams are semi-private. Spencer Morgan asks, interesting show versus book difference. In the show, we are led to believe that Will, the young, scared Night's Watchman, is the one who runs away. But in the book, it is Garrett, the 40-year veteran. Yeah, I thought that was, I was slightly critical of that. I don't think it mattered a whole lot. But it does mean more for the 40-year-old veteran to run away. That's more terrifying, that he's scared. The three-year veteran running off is just less scary than the 40-year-old veteran running off. When a guy who's seen it all, who's lost his ears to frostbite, who's lost toes and fingers, when that guy runs off, something's up. And of course, we learn later from Mormont that he's not the first. And in fact, we learn that in the next chapter from uh, Catelyn. John, or Ned tells Catelyn that, or he's the fourth one this year. And I'll have more thoughts on that in the next episode because I think there's more to be said about that. It's not just random. Violent Messiah 666 says, what do you think Garrett actually saw? I don't know if he saw anything. We're told that the wildling camp was about two miles from where they tied their horses up. So Garrett may not have seen anything. He may have, though. He may have actually seen the others and they spooked him and he ran off. And that's part of what I want to get into next time is whether or not they did it on purpose, whether they let him go, which I think, yes, I lean towards yes. They wanted him to run off. They wanted him to spread that fear in the South, destabilize the watch a little bit, put fear into the realm. So he may have seen him. He may have actually seen them, but he was terrified before the scene broke out, before the others appeared, before we saw the way... The, the POV almost shifts. It's almost a shift. It's not quite a shift when Will says the others made no sound because he does see them, but he just immediately is like, wow, they don't make a sound. It's, it blows his mind in a scary kind of way. It's not quite like Victorian's chapter where it completely changes from his perspective. And all of a sudden you're seeing like almost from a narrator perspective for about three paragraphs. It's not quite like that, but that one line is similar to that, where it's describing the others made no sound. That's, that's almost a narrator thing to say. But Will is, is astonished that they make no sound. He's aware of it, that they're making no sound. So it's just a way to 
it's just a, a line that's really scary. <laughs> the others made no sound. It's, you don't even know what they are yet. That's the first time they're named. Woo. The next question is from also from Bork Consciousness. If he had the ability, why didn't other Three-Eyed Raven do it before him? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, good point. Why didn't they? Yeah, see, I think that th- there's a lot of good arguments against his body snatching theory. Uh, the fact that it hasn't happened before and the fact that Blood Raven doesn't even hardly think it's possible. He doesn't think that going into Hodor is, I mean, he doesn't think it's impossible. He just, he doesn't have the power to do it himself, apparently. And we saw that Varamir Sixkins, very, very powerful warg himself, also didn't have the power to do it. Anyway, from Brian Eidolon, again. Aziz, do you think there's any particular significance to Blood Raven and Ghost both being albinos? Are there any others in A Song of Ice and Fire? Yeah. Yes, I do think it's significant. I think it's an absolute call back to the werewoods themselves. They're described similarly with the red eyes and the white fur, but also we have Melisandre. And the Ghost of High Heart. Boom. Yep, that, that's next on the list. And I think there might be a couple others, but those are the main ones. Definitely. Pale skin, red eyes. And Melisandre is particularly interesting because you're like, wait, what does she have to do with the old gods? What does she have to do with any of that? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> she doesn't have to have anything to do with the old gods to have that coloring mean some of the same things. Bone and blood. Because, yeah, it's werewood. But beyond that, it's bone and blood. <laughs> and that's Melisandre. You can see yeah, where that would be. I think it also her. gets into what we've theorized about with terms of the gods being a thing versus old gods that they're tapping into this power and that her power is a real power that is maybe gods are the best word we have for it yeah the best word we have for it but that her worshiping relore and tapping into that power can be very similar to them tapping into some magic system yeah we talked a lot about in our religion and magic series which some of our thoughts there would be different based on how the show approached things but a lot of it's still the same i think yeah from anything digital is sean doing these rereads sean is ahead of us we'll probably catch him because he read isn't read super fast and i do intend on maybe inviting him in for an episode or two but we probably can't do a lot of that. This timing doesn't work great for him. And if we're trying to move quickly, having another person weigh in isn't uh, going to help us do that necessarily. From Sally Nicholson, she says, in appreciation for the book club, I love how you were organizing this. Thanks for your hard work in making this content. Well, you know what? It is a labor of love. It is work, but it's fun to do. I'm, I'm really happy and really privileged to be able to do this. And yeah, it's part of part of why it's so exciting but even without that the books are just so good (laughs) it's so fun to reread them scott wartman hey there scott says house forester is mentioned in dance as well okay good i had did not realize that good to know i I imagine there's not a whole lot of detail on them but that's cool yeah they're definitely in there they're i believe they're how their keep is positioned at the top like the northern tip of the wolf's wood but that's from memory i could be wrong so some more so for here's what's coming up next time this episode, of course, this particular live stream isn't our normal full length, but doing more chapters, they're going to be longer. Just not this time. So coming up next, Catelyn 1, Daenerys 1, Eddard 1, John 1, Catelyn 2, Arya 1, and Bran 2. The first line is, Catelyn had never liked this godswood. That's Catelyn 1. And the last line of Bran 2 is, crows circled the broken tower, waiting for corn. So if you get to that line, you've reached the end of our scheduled seven chapters. Again, that's... Crows circled the broken tower waiting for corn, which you can remember pretty easily because it's right after Bran gets tossed by the Kingslayer. The Kingslayer tosses future King Bran. Hey, that's meaningful, isn't it? Oh, yeah. We'll be talking about that quite a bit. So here's some things to look out for. My tour guide voice, always pay attention to the first line of a character's point of view. Very often there's clues as to their entire arc or for what you're trying to tell us about this character. And of the seven chapters next week, five of them are firsts. Again, that's Catelyn's first and second. Arya's first, Eddard's first, Daenerys is first, and that's it. Five of them, yeah. And also take note of immediately how important Catelyn is to our our window to someone who's not from the North. All our other characters besides Tyrion, who we know isn't from the North, but someone who lives in the North that's not from there. So Catelyn is our, her distrust of the godswood, of beyond the wall, her fear of beyond the wall, her just strangeness of the North. It's supposed to be meaningful because she's not from there where everyone like brands used to it. Rickon's grown up there. All these, even Sansa who identifies more with the South isn't as put off by this Northern stuff because she's used to it. She's born there. We also have Ned's continued thoughts on Garrod and Mance Raider gets mentioned. The wildlings get talked about more and uh, also his denial that the others could possibly be a part of this, which yeah. Can't blame him for thinking that. They hadn't been seen for 8,000 years. That's a long, that's an unfathomable amount of time to, to human beings, really. 
we we get John and Danny both being very observant for their age, very observant, super important there. And as I said, while Bran was being taught justice and fear and learning about mercy and duty and all the ins and outs of that, Danny is surrounded by fear and taught vengeance. She's taught by her brother, who is just this paranoid, cruel, vindictive, just bad guy, really. That's your father figure and your brother figure and your future husband. What kind of weird situation to be in? Whereas compare that to Bran, who gets this nice fatherly upbringing, mother and father, whole family, all that. Of course, that falls apart later, but it's a, at least he gets that start. Then we get Eddard's first thoughts on the promise. It's already sneaky. The way that first sentence referring to Leon's promise is couched, it's almost something very mundane. It seems like, oh, I promised to bury her in the north. That's the way it's framed in this, <laughs> this first time. So be aware of all the tricks George is trying to use to keep you off the scent, which, of course, we already know what the scent is. But it's neat to look at how he does that. And notice the transition from Eddard feeling crushed by duty as soon as he knows it's coming. He knows he doesn't want it. He knows it's a bad idea. But he knows he has no choice but to accept being hand of the king to his friend Robert, who's openly admitting that, yeah, I'm just going to I want to drink and, and sleep my way into an early grave. <laughs> Take care of my feces. <laughs> and. That segues immediately to John's first chapter. You have Ned feeling down about that duty situation to, to John being temporarily relieved that he's a bastard. It's, he's like, most times I hate being a bastard, but this is one of the few times it's good. And why is it good? Because no one's paying any attention to him. Everyone's leaving him alone. Think about how that sticks out for John's ending in the show. <laughs> Everyone's leaving me alone. No one's paying attention to me. I like that. Hmm? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and for Bran's chapter, biggest of all, consider how his climbing and looking down on the world feels like green seer foreshadowing, but it's hiding that king foreshadowing. Both a king and a green seer wield massive power of different kinds, but Bran may end up being both, and that's huge. And consider, too, the foreshadowing and symbolism, not the foreshadowing, but the symbolism of him climbing high, which is chaos is a ladder. All the different similes and ways that power is said as something that's high, like a tall thing. You go, you climb up, you ascend to heights of power. It's always couched in, in height and tallness and all that stuff. So when Bran is looking down on the world as he's climbing, it again that scene he sees all these little people doing their little jobs it seems like green fear foreshadowing but think of it as king foreshadowing consider it in a different light especially when the kingslayer tosses him down from those heights of power only to give him new powers and to rise up again much later and there's a lot of irony there especially if you consider the original plan george r, r. martin had his original trilogy plan was for Jaime Lannister to murder his way to the throne and blame it on other people, particularly Tyrion, if I recall correctly. <laughs> what a, he, he didn't love his brother in the, in the original plan. He was totally willing to throw his brother under the Valyrian steel bus. What's a bus? In, under the Aurochs? I, I did want to point out someone in the chat who notes something that I forgot. Will Moss says chaos in a, is a ladder isn't said in the book. It's not. You're right. Just it's worth, it's, worth noting. It's true. And it's, I, I use that. In fact, I don't know of a similar line in the books, but the concept is there. So that's yeah. why I borrowed the show line, because it yeah. actually is a, one of the, a pretty good invention by the show there. Chaos is like, you know, it'd be funny if we find out that George wrote that episode. Because <laughs> he did write episodes back yeah, then. he did write them Maybe back he then. wrote that episode. That'll be hilarious. Like, oh, nope, can't give the show owners credit for that. That's George also. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not. Probably not. Probably they wrote that one. Because uh, he only wrote one one episode a year, so it would have to be that one particular one. So it's really big in that sense, and there's just so much to consider. And then, so be be aware of all that. Be aware of these language that he uses, heights and being above, and how that's uh, symbolism for power. And uh, consider also all these things in this first chapter about how he views duty and justice and mercy and love and all that, and see how that continues to play out. Because he's not done with the king foreshadowing in this first chapter. From Hi, Hello, Emma. What do you think of that? The first few times we are acquainted to Valyrian Steel are beyond the wall and Winterfell. I think I'm reaching with something, but I think it's interesting. 
Well, everything we see is uh, beyond the wall, is, is the beginning is beyond the wall in Winterfell. But, and it's interesting, too, that Catelyn is the one who describes the ice in her chapter more than we get elsewhere. But it is neat that there's extra Valyrian steel in the north. Like, how House Mormont got a Valyrian steel blade is something that a lot of people wonder about. Like, they're poor. And uh, so it's interesting to think, what could they have done to earn that? It probably didn't buy it, right? Because they're so poor, they probably earned it somehow. But how? I got no idea. Well, maybe we'll find out. Maybe we'll get more history on Longclaw. That's another one I wondered. Will Longclaw... Will John keep Longclaw the whole run of the books like he uh, like he did in the show? Hmm, good question. Lots of little questions like that that we can't possibly think of all the different things. Like, will this happen? Will that happen? That's what you guys are here to help with. We'll think of a lot of it, and you guys cover whatever we miss, and we'll uh, debate and discuss all of it. But that, I believe, covers today. And well, it's in this first next chapter. Catelyn tells John tells Ned in her first chapter that John Aaron's dead. So that's why I keep using that example because it comes up a lot, and we're about to hit it. But it's also a good example of a chapter of, of, of a type of plot line that we don't really need to focus too much time on. Instead, we look for the deeper clues, the magic, the foreshadowing, the end game stuff, the character conflicts, all the fun stuff that we didn't catch the first time through, that we didn't know about because the show hadn't revealed some of these things. Oh boy, do we have a lot to do, and I'm so excited. And Jennifer Shanley Clark checked for us, and The Climb was written by the showrunners. Okay. So they did write that line. Okay, well, good job, showrunners. That's a good line. It was. It's called The Climb, really? Yes. Oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> they really did. They were pretty good at fitting themes into episodes like that. Yeah. So, cool. All right, then. That's it for everybody today. Thank you to Ashea for running production and managing the chat. Thank you to everybody who attended live. Special, special thank you to Michael Klarfeld at Claradox.de who made a new little Valar Reredis animation for us with a little bit of music. And the music is by Kevin McLeod. McLeod. But yes, thank you to Michael. Absolutely good catch there, Ashea. Thank you to Michael. Hugely awesome that you did that for us. Of course, he made our regular video intro too. So this is just our intro and map guy. It's amazing. He's, we couldn't possibly have found a better person to do these things. And he is so generous. So thank you very much, Michael. And thank you to Kevin as well for the, the music. That's really good. It fits perfectly. And thank you to Jennifer for looking that up about uh, the climb. All good. So I've been saying it forever, but now it's uh, fits. It's not just a thing I say anymore. It's now a series that we're doing. It's a thing instead of just a phrase I use. So for real this time, Valerie Reedus. <laughs>